Turning your Bibles with us to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Having been out of this portion of our series for a little bit of time, I want us to go into a new section that begins in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, servants or the actual word is slaves. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This is, a, this is an interesting and provocative portion of God's Word because of the fact that it's speaking of slaves and masters. One of the greatest impacts of the life and growth of the Christian is the understanding of our role, especially as employees. Now, why do I equate the two? Well, virtually everyone is employed in some way or another. It could be true, of course, that there are some who've not yet reached this station in life, and there are most certainly others of us who are not employed at all uh, anymore under anyone's particular direction, those who are retired. But everyone at some time or another has either been employed or will be, and therefore will experience the principles which I think are embedded in this text. And I take the concept of employer and employee relationships and principles from this text of 1 Peter 2, 18 and following because I think it is a, an appropriate parallel. I think these principles arise from this text about employers and employees, even though it was very, very different in that time. And so I begin by saying this morning at the outset of of these three messages that I want to acknowledge that seeing in this section of Peter's teaching on submission as perfectly paralleling our responsibility as employees wouldn't be accurate. There are grave differences, to be sure. The reason I say that is because Peter uses the word slaves here to refer in the first century to those who were under the ownership of someone else. That's very different than our day, right? It is true that this is what Peter is particularly in the first century talking about, and I'm not suggesting at all, I'm not suggesting that our employee relationships are under the same kind of dynamic. Aren't you happy about that? That you're not owned by anyone Our employers don't own us, although it could appear by the demands of your work that you may think they sometimes are, but they're not, of course. No, ours is certainly a different kind of work, a different kind of employment. We'll talk about that in a moment. It is true, however, that the balancing of these statements and with another qualifier about servanthood, or to use that term, slavery, in the New Testament, is to be borne out through careful understanding. What do we mean by slavery and servanthood 
in the first century, and what do we mean by slavery and servanthood in the 21st century? What do we mean by masters or owners in the first century, and how does it relate to us in the 21st century as we know it? And while it was true, very true, even in the first century, that there was at times great mistreatment of slaves in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, some of it even rather severe at times, slavery as it should be understood in the first century was not, and I emphasize was not, the kind of slavery that we find practiced in the relatively recent past of a couple of countries, the United Kingdom as an example of one and the United States as an example of another. The two, slavery in New Testament times and slavery which is normally conjured up in your mind and in my mind because of our relatively recent past, ought to be understood. It ought to be understood and a bit separated out from one another. Some parallels, some of them somewhat striking in their parallel, but in other ways absolutely unparalleled and couldn't be paralleled in any way whatsoever. What do I mean? Well, I cannot emphasize enough that it cannot be proven that there is a submissive relationship to earthly masters as they saw it and lived it in the first century with what is going on now in our country. Back then, they were advocating a kind of slavery which we automatically think of when we think of employment. When you and I, in the 20th and 21st century, and even, of course, going back to some of the early days of our country's history, to say nothing of what was happening in the United Kingdom, Great Britain itself, those are very hard realities. And those realities are not as parallel in many ways, but in some, to what was going on in the first century. But we need to understand it. What's the background as we're talking about some of these things that were happening in the first century, because we ought to start there. And I would say, just by way of a bit of intro for our message this morning, we'll, we'll get to our first of about four outline points in this little series, but I want to talk mainly about introducing this subject because it can be so clearly misunderstood. If you were to say I want to talk this morning on the subject of slavery. What would be uppermost in your mind? You'd be thinking about the 1800s in our country, the 1900s. And of course, even into the 2000s, you and I would be thinking about something that is wrong and ghastly and unfair and utterly untenable. So, if you simply, even as a casual reader or maybe a very diligent student of the biblical record, you would see several passages. We're going to look at five of them in the New Testament alone that talks about this matter of slavery and of mastery. And if we're not careful, 
we take our, our contemporary glasses and we read these texts and we assume that what the first century is teaching us through the pen of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter, to take those two as examples, and that they must have been referring to the exact same thing that we know of as slavery in our current understanding. And in many ways, not all, but in many ways, we would be misunderstanding, therefore, the New Testament. So we have to be careful. One of the best commentators, for instance, on the book of Ephesians, where one of those passages lies about slavery and mastery, is Dr. Harold Honer. He's with the Lord now. But the late Dr. Harold Honer wrote a massive New Testament commentary on the book of Ephesians that is one of maybe a top two or three commentaries on the book. It's a, it's a thousand-plus page commentary on six chapters of the book of Ephesians. And I had the delight and the privilege of reading every single word of that commentary when I went through the book of Ephesians because I didn't want to miss a single insight of that brother. And especially because when you come to texts like Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2 and some others that we'll go over this morning, you certainly don't want to get it wrongly. I have a responsibility as a Bible teacher to work very diligently to make sure that what I'm saying is as closely approximating the teaching of the very authors themselves of the New Testament. And believe me, my friends, that's a weighty responsibility, especially when your words are recorded and faded memories become not so faded. And so when you are thinking of this idea of slavery and mastery of the New Testament. When you look through it through New Testament eyes, you should hear one thing. When you look at it, you perceive it through 20 century eyes later, it might be somewhat different, if not altogether different, in certain nuances and in certain ways. Similar in a few ways, yes, but so very different in so many others. Listen to this. The late Dr. Honer wrote that slavery, in a sense, the sense that we've heard about it, as I just tried to explain at least a little bit of the differences, since that slavery existed even all the way back into Old Testament texts, not just in the New Testament, where there are specific prohibitions against the ownership of another person, unless it was under strict guidelines, and especially if you were talking about a Hebrew slave and a slave owner. And when you come into that first century look at Roman domination, slavery was difficult for many, but not for all. You and I would say in the uh, 1800s and 1900s and 2000s, Slavery, or so it seems to us, was difficult for all, and in some cases massively unfair, and just plain ethically and morally wrong. Honer says very, very, I think, compellingly and historically accurately these things, quote, 
Some viewed slaves as property, speaking of the New Testament first century, like chattel or an inanimate tool rather than complete human beings, although according to Roman law, they were considered persons. Now that has some parallels, doesn't it, to some of our time and some of our ugly recent past as a country. He goes on to state, quote, however, as degrading as such slavery was, it must be realized that it was not the same as the slavery that existed in the United States. Listen carefully. First, the color of skin, referring to the first century, was not a factor. Second, freed persons could sell themselves into slavery knowing that they could later regain freedom. Dio Chrysostom explicitly states that they sold themselves, quote, under contract, end quote, which probably meant that there was a time limit on their slavery. There were various reasons for becoming a slave, such as, quote, to find a life that was easier than they had as freed men to secure special jobs and to climb socially, end quote. The late Dr. Honer further states, quoting even another source, that said someone's self-enslavement, quote, was in order to secure the post of service actor, Latin, the chief accountant of a big private household, like a house manager, and with normal luck to become later their freedman procurator in the same post and finish up a rich citizen with free-born children. We might say something like this today. He was attempting to climb up the corporate ladder. And you might sell yourself into slavery so that you can one day be released from that because you have worked your way out of such a contractual obligation and then you would be able then to work as a freed man and then to be able to raise your own children. That's what they're referring to. It was also a finding on one account of Pretonius of the Neronian error, the rights of a king's son, a king's son, who sold himself into slavery in order to become a Roman citizen so as not to have to pay taxes as a provincial. Third, slaves could become highly trained and educated. Dr. Honer goes on to say, in fact, some slaves became tutors and taught morals and manners to their to the sons of their owner's family. Some became professors of higher education and others physicians, philosophers, most notable of whom was Epictetus. Fourth, slaves could eventually become free and hence become Roman citizens. So what about the specific issues of slavery and how it's to be rightly defined and understood in the first century? It's a great question to say nothing of the question of how it relates today and how we're to apply these passages of the New Testament to our own slavery, quote-unquote, as it were. Dr. Honer writes, In the first century, slaves worked in many sectors of the economy. They were used in various types of agriculture and industry as potters and miners of gold and silver. Other occupations were public cooks, fullers, coachmakers, and bakers. In the professions, they were business agents and teachers, and in large households, accountants and physicians. Also, the Roman state owned slaves to carry out municipal services. Emperors used them throughout the empire in various capacities, and some even managed and maintained the imperial properties. 
like the uh, imperial or praetorian guard or uh, those of Caesar's household. In the imperial palace, slaves were used as physicians, chamberlains, overseers of furniture and palace lighting, selections of jewelry for specific costumes, valets, tailors and clothing menders, butlers in charge of wine for the imperial table, official tasters and stewards in charge of supplies. It is clear, Dr. Honer says, that the use of slaves was pervasive in the first century of the Roman Empire. And here's what's so amazing about the church of the first century, freshly born as it was. You might even have someone who was the slave of his master and for whom in the local church the master was a layperson in such a church and the slave might himself have risen to the position of elder. I'll try that on for size. So many differences. Parallels, yes, but massive differences. And so seeing these things as very different from what I've already said and need to emphasize in continuing to say the severe injustices that we think about when we consider particularly African Americans and others, of course, and what they have experienced when they were either first brought to this country or as their generations came to be and how unfair and unjust and unrighteous so many in our country have been toward them. It's wrong. It's terribly wrong. But don't automatically, even in those injustices, think that you and I can simply erase these passages in the New Testament that use the word slavery. Just understand the differences. Understand how some of these things are played out in both the first century context and in our own. Now, this is just an introduction, and there are many, many places where we'd have to fill in gaps and expand and qualify and nuance. I can't say everything in an introductory comment, although it often seems as though I do. Another commentary by another able writer, Wayne Grudem. Dr. Grudem speaks to this distinction. Both terms, oikates and doulos, the idea of like home managers and slaves, have been translated slave. That's the word, doulos. That's the word for slave. It's translated in the ESV often as servants, and Wayne Grudem, as the editor of the ESV Bible when it was translated in the English, was one of those who said one of the chief reasons why we chose the word servant instead of slave was simply because of the horrid connotation that slavery, the word itself, has because of what's happened in the United Kingdom and, and in our own country. And he's right to a degree. He says this word translated slave had the horrible degradation of slaves in 19th century America, and it gives the word slave a far worse connotation than is accurate for most of the society to which Peter was writing. It goes on to say, although mistreatment of slaves could occur then too, it must be remembered that first century slaves were generally, notice the nuance there, generally well-treated, 
And we're not only unskilled laborers, but often managers, overseers, and trained members of the various professions, doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, skilled artisans. There was an extensive Roman legislation regulating the treatment of slaves. They were normally paid for their services and could expect eventually to purchase their freedom. Dr. Grudem says, nevertheless, their service was involuntary. In earlier Roman history, slaves had been acquired through war or kidnapping from foreign lands. But by the first century, most slaves had simply been born into slave households. Their legal status, their social standing, and opportunity for economic independence were clearly lower than others in Roman society. That's part of the parallels that we see with our own. Although servant comes from the closest comes the closest, I should say. No single English word is adequate, perhaps because no comparable institution exists in modern Western society. That's why I say, I still say that employee and employer is close, not quite there, close, because we're talking about business and industry in some degrees. He goes on to say, therefore, even though there is no exact parallel to such servant status in modern society, the fact that this was by far far the most common kind of employee-employer relationship in degrees of functional and economic freedom, degrees of economic and functional freedom, it means that the application of Peter's directives to employees today is a very appropriate one. In fact, the word employer, though not conveying the idea of absence of freedom, does reflect the economic status and skill level of these ancient slaves better than do either of the words servant or slave today. So employee, let's use that, okay? Now, if I said everything that's in my heart, And if I qualified it with every fiber of my being like I'd want to, this would turn into such a multi-message series that we'd lose our focus. So let's not do that. With all of these nuancing and qualifiers and some of that reading, which as you know, I don't often do, rarely do I do it, but this is an incredibly touchy subject, isn't it? Very touchy. Especially over the last several years, where we've seen outright abominable injustices done to all kinds of people in our country with all kinds of different ethnicities and backgrounds, including our dear, beloved African-American brothers and sisters. I think some things are changing, some things not. Some attitudes are being lived out under the lordship of Jesus Christ and changing And there's repentance, some not. And I wish we had time to to talk about that. And possibly this will evoke, even in your own minds, dialogue with each other. To read and study and know and grow to an understanding where you can look at a text like this, 1 Peter or some of these others, and say to oneself, self, I've got a lot of learning. I've got a lot of studying to do. I can't just dismiss these passages as though that was a reality in the first century that has absolutely no parallel in our own. If that were the case, then why wouldn't we just skip over these verses and go on to the next topic? No, we can't. And while these nuancing and parallels and qualifiers are, to be sure, needing to be made, must be made, 
there are some principles to learn. And I would say principles to learn about employer and employee relationships. Let's learn the first one. If you're taking notes, this is just like the previous messages in this series, and it is the word of command, the command to submit to our employer. Look at the first part of verse 18, the command to submit to our employer. Listen to what he says. Peter writes, servants, or of course, doulos, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. Stop there. Be submissive. It's a command. It says that if you are the slave of another, the servant of another, and we might well say, by way of implication and or application, if you are an employer to the one who employs you, you are commanded to be submissive to your master, to the one who employs you, with all respect. As I said before, this command, just as it is told to us about being subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, here it is again, and it will follow itself again with wives, we are commanded to be in submission to the one who is over us, hupotasso, to line up underneath. It's an imperatival connotation. This is not an option for a believer. If you're working for someone who is employing you, this is our application, God, through Peter, is commanding us, commanding you, commanding me, that we must submit. And of course, be subject to your own masters with all respect. Verse 13 says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And if you see it and believe it, it's submission in all things. Now, even that has to be qualified. They ask you to do something that is clearly ethnically wrong. You can't submit because you have to do what God tells you to do. But we are commanded, in this case, we're commanded to provide our response to what he or she commands and to respect those who are over us in the workplace because it's an imperative. We must, as an imperatival command in our hearts and our actions, submit to our authority. And by the way, do you see the word respect there? With all respect? All respect. 100% word there. Respect. That's our, that's our word phobos. It means fear. Fear. Not, not, in a, not in a cowering fear, but remember we talked about the fear of God. It's the idea of a, of a healthy dread because He's almighty God and a kind of reverential fear, a, a holy fear because I know that He is the transcendent one and I'm to fear Him. And if you lower, many times over, of course, but if you lower that idea of a human instrument that this mighty God is placing over me, I am to follow suit and respond in submissive obedience with all respect. All respect. 
We are to respond to our earthly employer with a healthy sense of not wanting to displease them, wanting to honor them, not just honoring them for the pay that they give us for a job well done, but honor them so that we might show ourselves as giving this excellent behavior. Do you see it back in verse 11? Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or strangers and aliens to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, honorable. This is This is what we're doing to show ourselves as followers of Jesus Christ. You want to show that boss of yours that you are doing the job not just for him and to him as your earthly master, but also through him to your heavenly master. You've got an audience that goes right through your boss to the one who is the boss with a capital B. This is... This is what God's Word says, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him. And you know, apparently this is so important, not in the first century, but in the capturing of these first century words throughout the next 20 centuries, at least until we've come along, that God believes these things are so important that five places in the New Testament, five different places, five different New Testament books, we are told about this kind of relationship between ourselves and the one over us. Call it what you will. Call it slave master. Call it servant overseer. Call it employee employer. Call it what you will. But there are five places that give us explicit direction, including all of these and this one particularly, and Ephesians, as commands, a command to be obeyed. You want to see some of them? Turn over to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And here's what I want to do. I want to read these with virtually very little parenthetical response from myself. And I want you to let these sink in, and we'll just read these, and then we're going to pray and be done. And then next week... I'm confident you'll show up because we'll get into the guts of these things because these are so important, not only about the attitude, but about the action of a person who is to submit to their boss. Look at Ephesians chapter 6, particularly verse 5. Bond servants, that's also bond slaves. You have an ESV, you'll see it says in the footnote for the contextual rendering of the Greek word doulos, See the preface. Likewise, for bond servant in verse 8, uh, they're, they're letting us know that this is the word for a servitude, a slavery. Bond slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. There it is again, that phobos and traumas, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service, just not when the boss is looking, as people pleasers, but as bond slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. How so? Knowing that whatever good anyone does, that's good in your employment, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond slave or is free. 
whether he's a worker under those first century contexts as a slave or is a freed man. Verse 9, even a word to masters, of course, Christian masters, Christian employers, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours, that's obviously a reference now to a Christian boss, is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is just introduction, but so very important for our hearing and our study. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Bond slaves, here it is again, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Notice the, the striking parallels between the Ephesians and the Colossian references, those passages, twin epistles in some striking ways, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There's that idea of, of phobos again. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer, uh, the one who's not abiding by such principles as a worker, will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And then a word to masters again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Should be the end of chapter 3. Masters, treat your bond slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verse 1. Let all who are under a yoke as bond slaves regard their own masters as worthy of what? All honor. There's another one of those 100% words all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Isn't that beautiful? The sense that they they are brothers, both those who are working for and those who are over you in the Lord. These are Christian men and women who are to respond respectfully to each other. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. And then Titus, Titus chapter 2. So we have 1 Peter 2, the text we're in now, Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Titus chapter 2. Look at verses 9 and 10. Titus 2, 9 and 10, bond slaves are to be submissive, that's that idea of the command again, are commanded to respond to, to be submissive, to work under, to line up underneath to their own masters in everything, there's another 100% word, that is everything that's lawful, everything that's virtuous, everything that must happen if you're to be a biblical employee, they are to be well-pleasing these employees, not argumentative, not pilfering, that means stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I think that's your Christian witness. I think these passages, just as I read them in rapid fire succession and as we close now, is the opportunity for us to do a lot of soul searching. You say, well, I'm, I'm retired. I did all that soul searching. Now I'm my own boss. 
Well, that's okay. You can serve the Lord. You can serve the Lord. Oh, we're going to get to marriage. When you, however, are still in that employment, here's my challenge this week. Take these five passages, read them over and over and over again, and then say this, I'm going to do a spiritual evaluation of how I think both attitudinally and in my actions I'm doing. So get ready for a very convicting week. Get ready for the opportunity for the Word of God to come to bear upon our lives, maybe in perhaps ways that you might need to seek your boss's forgiveness. Maybe say, I haven't been the best employee I could otherwise have been. Or maybe to a fellow worker for whom you may have been witnessing And might you say to such a one, if they've seen you, let's say not at our best, to acknowledge to them that you've been reading some passages this week week that have been very convicting and that you want to share with them that you haven't been the greatest witness. Now, I would suggest you not say that to them on the job while you're supposed to be working. But I think if you were able to take them out for lunch or you're able to uh, have some social time with them before or after work, you could certainly say, I want to be the best representative of my ultimate Lord and Master Jesus Christ as I possibly can be. And perhaps I haven't been that. Or perhaps you've had the profound blessing of having someone come to you and say, I've been watching you, and there's something something different about how you respond to our mutual boss, how you do your work, Uh, How do you say it, Mr. Christian, uh, as unto the Lord? I want to talk to you more about this. I want you to tell me where you get the motivation to follow that boss of ours. You know, the implications and the application of this could run far and wide. So let's bow our heads now and let's ask the Holy Spirit to convict and challenge and change us. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask through the power of your Holy Spirit to give us an evaluation, a, a spiritual inventory about how we have been doing in our work life. There's certainly more to come in this passage, our dear Lord, but we do know this. There's enough simply in our casual reading of these five texts that convict us to no end. We ask that you would challenge us, change us, convict us, and also in some cases, blessedly, to affirm us, to encourage us that you're doing a job well done. And that this is truly a testament to adorning the gospel of God by the way you work. Father, we ask that in many ways, whatever deficiencies are there in our work, that we can go through that boss of ours, whether he be a Christian or pagan through and through, And we go to our ultimate Lord and Master, 
the Lord Jesus Christ himself, and we ask him for mercy, correction, change, affirmation, encouragement. And may we do so, even for those of us who are in our congregation who have long retired from their employment, and perhaps they could be wonderful counselors for us. Perhaps they can tell those of us who are still, still employed how they did things rightly and also wrongly. May also they be our counselors and guides. And even for our young people here today who are looking at the prospects of going into the workforce at some point, may we be sterling examples for them. And may we help them understand the biblical basis for doing what we need to do to work in such a way to adorn, to see others adorn the gospel of God. Father, there is much here for us. And may we, with all of our hearts and minds, and with all of our grit and determination, and with all of the grace that you can supply, we either want to confess our failures or praise you for our successes and ask that we be those examples for others to look so that we are those set on a hill glowing for the world to see that we're workers for God through whom God has placed over us. May it be so. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.